Welcome, everybody. This is the last Sunday of 2019. A new year, a new decade is coming. 2020. I want to say a special welcome to those of you who are watching online. Thank you for joining us here. And this is just a one-off message. It's not a series. We begin a brand new series next week in the book of 1 Corinthians. We're going to be going through that wonderful book that it deals with issues in a church, a church in trouble, issues and answers, and I think you're going to really enjoy that. Before we jump into today's message, I'd like to take a few moments to recap and um, just see where we've been in 2019. Um, 2019 was a year, and if you were here one year ago today, you would have heard the message, uh, vision message rather, because we always try to give a vision message the last Sunday of the year, kind of recap where we've been and cast vision for where we're going. And by the way, uh, this message, we're going to give you 2020 vision. Isn't that perfect? 2020 vision as to where we're headed in the new year and some clarity around that. Last year, though, when we came, we said 2019 is going to be a year to build, and um, it has been a year to build. We said in particular three areas that we want to see built, and the first and most important is we want to build the body of Christ here. We want to build you up as disciples, as followers of Jesus, and we're in the middle, actually about three quarters of the way through now, our unfinished generosity initiative. And it's, it was designed to help each one of us grow in our faith, in our trust of God, in our relationship with the Lord, and in particular regarding generosity. And so you guys have stepped up to the plate, and I would like to thank you for that. We set a goal, uh, it'll be a year and it'll be two years rather in April, of $4.4 million, and we're right on track for reaching that goal. You guys, generosity is at an all-time high, and we've been trying to I guess that's worth a clap. Thank you. God bless you. We've had so many testimonies, and we've tried to show you one about every month, a video testimony of what God is doing in the lives of people, and so many people are growing in their faith. It's just been an exciting time. In addition to that, uh, behind the scenes, we've been working on growing some leaders, so we started a school of ministry called RSM, or the Rock School of Ministry. We currently have five students in Rock School of Ministry. Next year, we're hoping to go even larger, and um, it's been an exciting time. In addition to that, our staff has grown. We hired uh, an executive pastor, Wade Burnett, who actually lives in Tennessee. Isn't that strange? But in this world of technology, and Wade, if you're listening, we're so glad you're part of the team. He's actually the executive pastor for four churches in the United States, and he comes up here about every six weeks, and then all of our other meetings are uh, via Zoom. Isn't technology wonderful? And then we hired um, Sean Bennett. You saw him do the announcements today. He's our creative arts director, (laughs) minister. He's doing a great job there. And so uh, the staff has grown as well. In addition to that, God has blessed our congregation. We've grown from about 1,250 people in attendance a week in two locations to about 1,450 this year. Amen. Uh, We saw over 104 people baptized this year. In addition to that, we had we tried some new things this year. We did a thing called Summer Blast to reach our kids this summer, and that was wonderful. We did a motion conference for our students in Alabama, and we hosted our very first marriage conference in the fall, and I love that. I think just, that was awesome. 
And so we've got some more conferences planned in the new year. We'll talk to you about that coming up. Um, in addition to that, we said not only we're going to build the body, but we're going to build buildings. And how many of you know that's just kind of obvious? 2019 has been a year to build. Do you realize one year ago today, we did not have a church in Old Town? Now we have a church, a thriving congregation of 300 plus people in Old Town every week in a beautiful building at 240 Main Street on the banks of the Panabi. Just a beautiful spot. And so we thank God for that. In addition, of course, the obvious for us in Bangor, the Bangor campus, is we've got this building going on behind us, and uh, we will be in it this winter. I know I said Christmas, because that's kind of what we were told. And uh, we had a few changes. It just, you know, building takes a little longer than you think, and it costs a little bit more than you think. But we're getting there, amen? Amen. So what's going to happen is this winter, we will occupy that new building. This building will go under renovation for our children's ministry. And then we're planning on doing a big grand opening when it's all done next fall. But we'll be in this building. The kids will be in, in the brick building while we're working on this one. And then it'll all be done, Lord willing, by the fall, and we'll do a big celebration. That sound good? In addition to that, not only are we building our body in 2019, it was a year to build, building buildings, both Old Town and Bangor, uh, but we said we were going to build our brand. And let me specifically talk to you a little bit about the details of that. Not only do we have a new logo and a new color palette and a new web address, we, we changed from TRC Bangor, the Rock Church in Bangor, to TRC North to fully embrace a multi-site strategy. And in the past, what we kind of focused on was church planting. And since the inception of the first Rock Church, we planted about nine different churches or helped replant nine churches. And we found that it was somewhat cumbersome. The learning curve on new church plants is hard. Five of those churches are still going. Four didn't make it. And we said, is there a better strategy to reach more people in Maine? Because it's always been our mission to turn the people of Maine into wholehearted followers of Jesus Christ. And so we have locked into the multi-site strategy. And if you were to look in, in terms of like a business model, look at something like a Dunkin' Donuts. You know whether you're in Bangor or Old Town or Portland or wherever. If you go to a Dunkin' Donuts, you pretty much know what to expect, right? It's a similar menu. It's a similar look and feel. It's the same. And so what we said is, we're, what if we apply this to the church world? And we've been seeing this work around the world now for a decade or more. The learning curve and the success rate is much higher in multi-site churches versus church planning. Let's use the same systems, the same message, the same children's ministry, the same music, and let's do this in different communities. And instead of doing church planning, let's do multi-site. We'll do church campuses. We'll just keep doing churches, but we're all one church in different communities. And so Old Town was like our first real effort to invest heavily and do that. And like I said, in one year, we have 300 people. We've had many, we've had whole families get saved and be baptized. It's, It's been a wonderful experience. So we want to do that again, and again, and again, and again, and again. And so I want to give you an exciting announcement. Guys, are you here? Where are you? Okay, they're coming. But we are in the works, and I'm not going to tell you exactly when the date is because it's not settled yet, but we are working now on our third campus. And the most important part of a campus is the campus pastor. Buddy and Olivia Ekman are up in Old Town. And I'm here to announce to you today, come on in the light, out of the darkness, 
that Jeremy and Ruth will be our new campus pastors in Brewer. Can you give them a hand? So we are excited about that. Again, more details to follow. It's not happening tomorrow. We've got to get into our building, but behind the scenes, we're working towards it. But we wanted to give you a heads up, so give them a hand. We're excited about you guys. We love you guys. So good things are happening. Amen. Now, let me focus on today and the message today as we set the stage for the new year. Again, 2019, I think you can see we were praying, we were believing, we were communicating that it's going to be a year to build. And we did see that God build the body and we're building physically, building the buildings. And now we've settled on how we're going to go forward in the future. But let me talk to you specifically about 2020 and cast the vision that I believe 2020 is a year for revival at the Rock Church. And I'm going to explain what that looks like and what that means. Psalm 85 and verse 6, the sons of Korah wrote these words, said this, God, will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? What is a revival? I used to think it was something mystical or something you could manufacture or maybe something that happens under a tent in a hot summer's night when somebody's real sweaty and screaming. I don't know what your idea of revival is, or maybe it's a week-long series of services. You know, we're going to have our revival services. But what biblically is a revival? A revival refers to a spiritual awakening from a state of dormancy or a better way to say it, from stagnation in the life of a believer to a passionate spirituality. It's not a mystical thing. It's not something you can manufacture. Charles Finney, the United States, you may be aware of this from history, has had a couple of spiritual awakenings. And the first great awakening, and it's interesting, when God would send an awakening to the United States of America, something would happen politically after that. For example, the first great awakening with Jonathan Edwards. What we saw in the, the 1700s before the Revolutionary War was a spiritual awakening where pastors would come and it, the message was really focused on holiness. And there was a very famous sermon preached called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And when Jonathan Edwards would get up and speak, people would literally just melt with conviction and repent and cry out for the mercy of God. And that whole spiritual awakening uh, precipitated the Revolutionary War. And then in the 1820s, 30s, 40s, kind of peaked in the 40s, just prior to the Civil War, there was the second Great Awakening by um, Charles Finney was like a prominent preacher during those days. And Charles Finney was a lawyer turned preacher. He was very methodical in his delivery of the gospel, and it, there was much prayer that went into this revival. And what happened as a result of that were whole areas, and both these, by the way, started in the Northeast. Isn't that interesting? And as the, the gospel message would go forward, people's hearts would be warmed to the gospel again, and there's, there's like a resurgence, an awakening, a coming to life again. Now, we see in the Scripture... We see examples of revivals where 
there's a resurfacing of our love for God. Not that we ever didn't love Him. It's just, it's kind of like a marriage. If you don't work at it, how many know a marriage can kind of get, grow cold? And you still go through the routines. You still love each other, but there's no passion anymore. Spirituality can be like that. We do the right things. We serve, we give, we worship, we read, but the heart becomes stagnant. Spirituality becomes perfunctory. It becomes just going through the motions. And there's no vitality. There's no life to it. It's just doing the right things, consistent, without the heart behind it. We see this in the book of Revelation. You remember John was on the island of Patmos. And he got the Revelation, the last book of the Bible. And as he was writing that, seven letters to seven churches, the very first letter in Revelation chapter 2 was written to a church called Ephesus, the Ephesians. And of course, Paul starts the church. Timothy had been the pastor there. And these people loved God. They were very diligent to hold to the gospel truth. They endured hardness. They worked hard. And the Lord commended them for all these things. Yet in his one word of rebuke, he said this, but I hold this against you. Talking to a church. You have left your first love. You've lost it. Remember the height from which you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first or else I'm going to come and remove your light, your, light, your lampstand. What had happened? They were going through the motions. They, were, they still loved God. They still loved the gospel. They still were doing the right things. They endured hardness, all these good things. But the life had gone out of it. They, they lost their first love. What is the most important commandment in all the Bible? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with your mind and with your soul and with your strength. And the second is like unto it, love your neighbor as you love yourself. A spiritual revival encompasses this resurfacing of our love for God, an appreciation of God's holiness, a passion for the word, a passion for Christ's church, a convicting awareness of personal and corporate sin encompassed in a spirit of humility and a desire for repentance and spiritual growth. Given that definition, could you use a little spiritual reviving? I went to see my mother recently in Florida and as I was on the plane, um, I was looking through the movies and I found this one called Breakthrough. And what happened in this true story is this kid fell through the ice and he sunk to the bottom of this pond and they got him out like 45 minutes later and he was like dead. But what happened was they revived him. He came back to life. And it was his, actually his mother's prayer. He was, he was like coated. He was flatlined. And she, she stood in this. Well, I'm not going to spoil it. Maybe we'll show this at, at the movies this summer. Nonetheless, he was revived. He literally came back to life. No brain damage or anything. It's just an amazing story. And when we are revived spiritually, what happens is not only do we continue to live consistently, we live more consistently in our faith, but here's the thing. Our homes become more holy and therefore more happy. Lord, revive us again. 
that your people may rejoice in you. And I've gone through different seasons, having been a Christian now for over 40 years, different seasons, different ups and downs. I try to keep the consistency thing going, but if I'm not careful, if I don't work at it, if I don't intentionally have times and seasons where I am seeking God the way I know that I should be, if I just get all routine, my love grows a little cold. How about you? And there are times where God calls us to this this reckoning where we say, okay, I picked up some junk in my life, maybe some bad habits. I can tell that my heart is not as warm to Christ, my witness not as passionate as it was. Lord, in the midst of days, our days, our daily routine, won't you revive us again that we may rejoice in you? As I was talking about the second great awakening with Charles Finney, that lawyer turned preacher in the 1800s. I remember reading after him because I have a collection of sermons from some of the, you know, the great preachers of the past, and I was reading one of his sermons about revival, and he said this, a spiritual revival is no more mystical than a farmer getting a harvest from planting a garden. See, when my mind, when I would hear a spiritual awakening or revival, I used to think it's some sovereign thing that God sends down if you maybe fast or pray enough. And I'm not saying that's not important. That is. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But I thought maybe it's something you could manufacture, something you could work up through your diligence and through your effort. And and if you could just, maybe, somehow the scales tip if you do enough good spiritual stuff where God's just going to rain down His blessing in heaven and everybody's just going to be swept up in this euphoria. And maybe if we sang longer or more demonstrative in our worship, we could have a revival and Finney said, and I'm going to show you here where I think he's right. He said, it's no more supernatural than this. You take a seed, which God has already put the DNA for that plant and the life of that plant and the fruit. You take that seed and you plant it in good ground. You make sure it has plenty of sun and water. And all by itself, life comes. And he said, a spiritual revival is no more supernatural than that. God has already put it into place. We just need to come in line. Let the, let the, the soil of our hearts and the pH and the alkaline, alkalinity, let that level be at what the Scripture says it needs to be, and God will do a refreshing work in His people. Draw near to God, and He'll draw near to you. So I want to show you from actually a prayer of dedication at a church, a temple, where Solomon uttered these profound, powerful, yet simple words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in 2 Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 14. And I want to show you three keys to living in revival. Three keys to being alive spiritually, where your heart is passionate for Christ. And I'm going to read this and then I'll break it down for you real quickly. In the context of where we're headed, I believe, as a church in 2020, 2 Chronicles 7, 14, if my people, it's conditional, if we do this, God says he will do this. It's not mystical. It's not supernatural. Very practical. If my people who are called by my name, 
will do this, will humble themselves and pray, will seek my face, will turn from their wicked ways, then I will do this. I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. Three keys to living in revival. The first one is humility. Humility speaks to a person's attitude. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. A humble person is a meek person who understands both their dependence upon God, their need for His grace and their mercy in their lives, and their need to serve others and put others before self. Of course, the opposite of humility is pride, and we know that God keeps the proud at arm's length. We know who gets grace in this life. God gives grace to the humble. We know that if we exalt ourselves, we'll be made low, but if we lower ourselves, God will exalt us. These are all clear principles that we see in the Scripture. A humble person is a person who looks out for the interests of others before self. A humble person is a person who acknowledges the truth that we have sinned, that we are sorry for sins, that we're, there's contrition in our heart, that we are dependent upon God, and that is why we pray, because we need His grace, we need His favor, we need His mercy, and we are here not for ourselves, not for self-ambition, selfish ambition or self-aggrandizement, we are here for Him and for others. And when God begins to see a people that humble themselves and pray, it's almost like He can't resist that quality of humility, that honest, contrite heart attracts the presence of God. And Jesus, of course, is our perfect example. We see in Philippians 2, 3, and 8, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. It's not about us. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but to each other, each of you rather, to the interests of the others. In your relationship with one another, have this attitude, have this mindset, the same one that Jesus had. And this is, of course, the incarnation here, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. What did he do? He became like us. He made himself nothing. He took the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. God looks for people. The eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the earth to look for someone whose heart is perfect toward Him. And when He finds a person or He finds a body of people who care more about their community, who care more about those they work with or their family members or their friends or their neighbors or their enemies than they do about their own needs, and they go to God in prayer and they seek Him and they humble themselves, God responds to that heart, to that attitude. Humility. One of the things we like to do as a church family, and I invite you to do this, it's totally up to you. There's no force. This is an 
act of the will, right? If you want to do it, fine. If not, there's no judgment or condemnation, but I want to encourage you to, to think about the new year, starting it in a way where we come with a posture of humility and prayer before God. And we're going to enter into 21 days of fasting and prayer starting next January, next Sunday, the first January, Sunday in January, <laughs> 5th to the 25th, a season of fasting and prayer. And I'm going to ask you, maybe you've never done anything like this before in your life. I'm going to ask you to fast something. What does that mean? Even though you have freedom for the purpose of drawing closer to God, denying yourself something you want for this 21 days. Maybe it's coffee. Maybe it's sweets. Maybe it's cigarettes. Maybe it's Facebook. Maybe it's just saying, you know what? Because for the purpose of drawing closer to God, because I want to draw closer to Him, because I want to humble myself from January 5th to January 25th, I will not allow myself this freedom. I deny myself. I'm telling you, you do something like this, you humble yourself before God, quiet your flesh flesh before God, draw near to God, the promise is He'll draw near to you. Maybe there's this thing in your marriage that's just driving you crazy and it's got to break. Maybe there's a health issue you're struggling with or a problem at work. Or maybe you're just, your passion for God is not what it used to be and now it's become just routine or I don't know what it is. But here's what I know, that when we make the effort to humble ourselves and pray, God hears it every time. He hears our prayers. He sees our contrition, our desire for more of Him. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. So I've already got coffee off the list. I'm going to knock off sweets off the list. And the biggest thing right now that I think, technically fasting is like food and drink, right? It's food. So I'm going to do those things. But for me, it's my cell phone. And so I'm going to, I'm going to fast all scrolling, all news, all that kind of stuff, which I spend hours a day just doing that. I'm too much of a news junkie. And I'm just going to say, you know what? I'll, I'll use my phone for calling and for email and for text, but no, none of the entertainment stuff. I'm going to cut it off. We'll talk more about that next week, but here's the thing. Take this seriously, please. I keep a journal and I'll write down things, goals for the new year, prayers that I have, and I'll sit my family down. I've done this for many years. I'll tell, tell my children, what do you believe in God for this year? My wife. What, do, what are we asking the Lord for? What do we want to do? Where, and I'll just write it down and we'll pray over it. And then it's amazing. We go back to the end of the year. We'll do this next week with my family. And we'll look, here's what we asked God for last year. Here's what we prayed about. And here's what's happened. I think it's helpful to remember, to reflect. The spiritual discipline of fasting and prayer is important in your life. Take it seriously. Humble ourselves before God. The second thing is this. We're going to live in this personal revival, this spiritual awakening, this, this joy of God's presence in our life. Not only do we need to humble ourselves, but we need to be hungry. We need to hunger. If my people which are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face. Seek my face. Well, how do you do that? Christ is at the right hand of the Father. 
He can't see his face. What does this mean? Seek my face. This hunger, spiritual hunger, speaks to a person's appetite. What are you hungry for? What is the motivating factor in your life? What are you driven to do and to accomplish? What, what gets you up in the morning? What lights your fire? There's a lot of good things in this world, but there's, there's to be one thing that's preeminent in our life. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. That should be the, the number one thing we hunger for. And there's two ways that I think we see this expressed. And Jesus, when He's talking to the woman at the well, we see it. The Father is looking for people to worship Him in spirit and in truth. In spirit, it's that heart, it's that passion for God and a passion for His presence. And it's in truth, it's a hunger for the Word of God. I'm not condemning you, I'm not judging you, but just be honest. How much time do you spend every day in the Word of God? Or do you just get one cold snack a week on Sunday? Well, thank God for the snack, but it's not a good enough diet. You know, if all I had was snacks... I wouldn't have a six-pack, I'd have a snack pack. (laughs) By the way, I gained six pounds in the month of December. (laughs) I'm going to work on getting rid of that snack pack. The fast will help. The fast will help. What are you hungry for? Seek my face, God said. You want to piddle around in the shallows of spirituality? Then just go through the motions. If you're serious about being a disciple, a follower of Jesus. And there needs to be a passion for His Word, a passion for His presence. In Deuteronomy 8, 3, the children of Israel, it's interesting to see the cycles that the nation would go through. When they were prosperous and blessed, they would turn from God and they would get into their own little routines and their own little practices and they would kind of let their love for God grow cold. And so God would send some form of judgment and it would shake them, and then they'd serve God again, and then when things got good again, and they got prosperous, and they'd backslide again, and kind of go into their own. We do the same thing. But God wanted to teach them right, right off the bat when they left Egypt, and were in the wilderness on their way to the promised land. He wanted to teach them the need for daily dependence upon God and God's Word. And, Deuteronomy, and He used a physical example to show them this. It was called manna. That word means, what is it? And God wanted to show that they should live by every word that He provides, by the living bread. And so He would give them every morning, like frost, they'd go out of their tents, and there'd be frost on the ground. But this frost was actually food, angel food. It looked, it was like wafers, and it tasted like wafers made with honey, and they would grind it up and make their breads. And, and here we see in Deuteronomy 8.3 that God humbled you, and He caused you to hunger These are the two things we're looking at so far. To live in this spiritual revival, there has to be humility and there has to be hunger. And sometimes we're not hungry because we're feasting on too much fleshly stuff, too much entertainment, too much pursuit of wealth, too much into our own routines in life and not enough focus on the kingdom. And He humbled them, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna which neither you nor your ancestors had known, this bread from heaven. And why was he doing this? To teach you that man does not live by natural things alone, not by bread alone, but we are to live on every word 
that comes from the mouth of God. I'm saying that I would love to see 2020 be a back to the Bible revival where we have a hunger for God's word like never before. One of the ways we're going to try to do this, there's a couple ways we're going to try to do it. We're going to introduce for our women in conjunction with our small group ministry, a, a city group for women that where we're really focusing with our women beginning in February. We want to have women of the word, women who are growing in depth of knowledge of the word. We're going to do a ladies conference, a women's conference for the first time in the month of May. We're going to have verse-by-verse Bible preaching. We're going to go through the book of 1 Corinthians, which is a letter to the church, a church that had issues. How many of you got issues? We got issues. And it's such a wonderful work that Paul gave. We're going to go through every week through this book of Corinthians. I'm going to invite you to jump into this New Testament book that's written specifically to the church to help us deal with division and unity and spiritual gifts and sexual problems and the power of God, and the resurrection of God, and propriety and worship, and all these things. It's going to be so exciting. You tell I'm excited? <coughs> yeah, I'm wicked excited. <laughs> and then we want to help you understand and get a good foundation in the Old Testament. If you don't understand the Old Covenant, how can you hope to understand the New Covenant? The Old Covenant. The Old Testament. Go ahead and watch this video, and I'm going to tell you about a conference we're going to have here at the end of January. It'll be a Friday night, January 31st, into Saturday morning, February 1st. Go ahead and watch this. So this is the Bible. Well, these days it might even turn on, like this. The Bible is large, it is old, it was around when people looked like this. How does it apply to me? I mean, it's longer than 140 characters. Where do I begin? It can be intimidating. Why do I need to learn the Old Testament? Why not just skip over to the New Testament? Well, consider this. Did you know that Jesus quotes the Old Testament? God's story of salvation and love begins in the Old Testament? Or did Jesus lived during Old Testament times? Maybe you like Genesis and Exodus is pretty epic, but what is the deal with Leviticus? And what's a Habakkuk? Walk through the Old Testament can answer all these questions in a few hours. Yeah, that's right, you can learn the entire Old Testament in a few hours. You can learn it in the time it takes to fly from New York to L.A. or in the time it takes to build that bookshelf from that funny-sounding furniture store. Walk through the Old Testament is the creative idea of Walk Through the Bible. Over 10 million people have discovered Walk Through the Bible live events. God's big plan in the Old Testament is really a rescue plan, an amazingly true story of how God wanted a relationship with His people. It's filled with drama, excitement, and family tension. Plus, there's a dude named Jethro. It's not just knowledge, it's a foundation upon which everything else in your life should be built on. Knowing the Old Testament helps you understand God, His plans, His justice, His love, and how you fit into all of it. God has a plan for your life. Understanding the Old Testament is understanding God better. So... What if you could learn the entire Old Testament in just a few hours? What if you could know it so well you could tell a friend in three minutes? Well, you can. Attend to walk through the Old Testament, learn the Old Testament in just a few hours, remember it, and apply it to the rest of your life. (laughs) 
I'm super excited about this. And the instructor for this actually is a part of our church family. He travels a lot. And actually, we supported him last year with the orphans in uh, Nairobi, Kenya. I remember that. And most recently, this fall, we helped with a project in Haiti. They're building a church. But it's Danny Thomas right here, who's taught, walked through the Bible to thousands of people in how many states and countries? 20 countries and 25 states. 25 states and 20 countries. And he's going to be teaching us this. So I am super excited. At the end of this, you're going to know the narrative of the Old Testament and be able to walk through it yourself. And it's a proven strategy that millions of people have taken, and it's coming right here to the Rock Church. Amen. Let's feed that hunger. Let's feed that appetite for spiritual things. Let me conclude with a a final couple thoughts here from this scripture. We're going to have a revival, a spiritual awakening, a refreshing, a time of a renewed love and passion for God, then we have to start with our attitude of humility, dependence on God, the desire to be a servant to others, that contrite heart. And then we have to have a hunger, an appetite for it. And one of the best ways I know to create an appetite is to stop eating. And as we stop eating some of this entertainment, this stuff that pacifies our flesh, and as we fast and seek God and humble ourselves, we're going to get more hungry. And then here's where the rubber meets the road in revival. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Now, if we're not careful, we all pick up just trash from living. Sometimes it's an offense. Sometimes it's an issue of the heart, lust, or greed. Sometimes it's just a neglecting of things that we know we should do. But nonetheless, in a revival, there is a renewed desire to walk in the beauty of holiness, to live a set-apart godly life, to repent. What a wonderful gift God gives us in repentance. It's the goodness of God that leads us to this place where we turn from our sin, from our apathy, and we turn our hearts fully to the Lord. I love Acts 3.19. The scripture says, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out and that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Repentance. What a wonderful gift. And when we repent, and God's already dealing with me as he has been for a few months, but some stuff that I've kind of just picked up along life's way. And I'm in the process of repenting. Oh God, I'm sorry. I see that. How about you? Is there anything in your life that needs to change? Is there anything you know, all right, I've let this slip a little bit or I've fallen into that or I need to shore this up? Repentance is that beautiful, beautiful gift that God gives us so we can walk in holiness. Scripture says without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Without living a set-apart life of righteousness and holiness before God. And here's what God's promise is to His people. He said, if you'll do these things, if my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, have that hunger for God, and turn from their wicked ways, here's what I will do for my people. I'll hear their prayers. I'll forgive their sin. And I'll heal their land. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we 
look back with grateful hearts over 2019. Thank you for all the wonderful work you've done in our lives, in our church family. Lord, both personally, corporately, thank you so much, Lord. And Father, I pray that 2020, that you would give us clear vision, 2020 vision, of each one of us personally and corporately, Lord, our hearts ablaze with passion and love for you, our creator. I pray for a hunger for your word, Lord, like we've never had before. I pray that we would all walk in this attitude of humility like Jesus, looking out for the needs of others with a contrite heart, God, and grant us repentance out of your goodness, Lord, that we may live and walk in holiness and the beauty of holiness. Father, I pray for a renewal, an awakening, a revival. Lord, let it start in my heart. Let it start in our hearts, Lord. We thank you for it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.